Section 30 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2, Great Navigators of the 18th Century, by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 1, Part 2, French Navigators, 2C upon the twenty first la perouse sighted formosa and at once entered the channel which separates that island from china he discovered a very dangerous bank unknown to navigators and carefully examined the soundings and approaches shortly afterwards he passed in front of the bay of the ancient dutch fort of zealand where the capital of the island taiwan is situated the monsoon was unfavorable for ascending the channel and la perouse therefore resolved to pass to the east of the island he rectified the position of the pescadores islands a mass of rocks which assume various shapes reconnoitred the small island of botol tobacco chima where no navigator had landed coasted kinin island which forms part of the kingdom of lycan whose inhabitants are neither chinese nor japanese but appear to be of both races and sighted hoa pinsu and Tiaoisu Islands. The latter form part of the Lycan archipelago, known only through the letters of Father Goubil, a Jesuit. The frigates then entered the eastern sea, and directed their course to the channel which divides China and Japan. La Perouse there encountered fogs as thick as those which prevail upon the coast of Labrador, with variable and violent currents. The first point of interest before entering the Sea of Japan was Quelpeert Island, first made known to Europeans by the shipwreck of the Sparrowhawk upon its coast in 1635. La Perouse determined its southerly extremity and surveyed it for a distance of twelve leagues. It is scarcely possible, he says, quote, to find an island of pleasanter aspect, a peak of about 4,500 feet high, visible at a distance of eighteen or twenty leagues, rises in the centre of the island, the land slopes gently from thence to the sea, so that the houses look like an amphitheatre. The soil seemed to be highly cultivated. By the aid of our glasses we clearly made out the divisions of the fields. They are in very small allotments, which augurs a large population. The different shades of the various cultivated patches give a very agreeable variety to the view." the explorers had ample opportunity for taking the longitude and latitude which was the more important as no european vessel had navigated these seas which were only indicated upon the maps in accordance with the chinese and japanese maps published by the jesuits upon the twenty fifth of may the frigates entered the channel of korea which was minutely explored and in which soundings were taken every half hour as it was possible to keep close in shore it was easy to observe some fortifications in the european style and to note all their details on the twenty seventh an island was perceived which was not to be found upon any map and which seemed to be about twenty leagues distant from the coast of korea it received the name of dagelet island the course was now directed towards japan but it was very slow on account of the contrary winds that prevailed. On the 6th of June, Cape Noto and the island of Tsutsima were discovered. 
quote, Cape Noto, upon the Japanese coast, says La Perouse, is a point on which geographers may rely, reckoning from it to Cape Kona on the eastern coast, the position of which was determined by Captain King, the width of the northern half of the empire may be ascertained. Our observations have the greater value for geographers, as they determine the width of the Gulf of Tartary, to which I now directed my course." Upon the 11th of June, La Perouse sighted Tartary. He made land precisely at the boundary between the Korea and Manchuria. The mountains appeared to be six or seven thousand feet high. A small quantity of snow was visible on the summits. No trace of inhabitants or cultivation could be seen, nor was any river's mouth found upon a length of coast extending for forty leagues. A halt would have been desirable, to enable the naturalists and lithologists to make observations. Quote, Up to the 14th of June, the coast had run to the northeast by north. We were now at 44 degrees latitude, and had reached the degree which geographers assign for the so-called Strait of Tassoy, but we were five degrees farther west than the longitude given for this spot. These five degrees should be taken from Tartary and added to the channel which separates it from the islands north of Japan. Whilst coasting along this shore, no sign of habitation had been perceived. Not a pirogue left the shore. The country, although covered with magnificent trees and luxuriant vegetation, appeared to be uninhabited. On the 23rd of June, the Boussole and the Astrolabe cast anchor in a bay situated in 45 degrees 13 minutes north latitude and 135 degrees 9 minutes east longitude. It was named Ternay Bay. Quote, we burned with impatience, says La Perouse, to reconnoitre this land, which had occupied our imagination ever since we left France. It was the only portion of the globe which had escaped the indefatigable activity of Captain Cook, and perhaps we owe the small advantage of having first landed there to the sad event which ended his days. This roadstead was formed of five little creeks, separated one from the other by hillocks covered with trees of a more delicate and varied green than is to be seen in France in the brightest spring before our boats reached the shore our glasses had been directed to the coast but we perceived nothing but stags and bears quietly grazing our impatience to disembark increased at the sight the ground was carpeted with plants similar to those of our climate but more vigorous and green most of them were in flower at every step we found roses red and yellow lilies lilies of the valley and almost all our field flowers the summits of the mountains were crowned with pines, and oak trees grew halfway up, decreasing in size and vigor as they neared the sea. The rivers and streams were planted with willows, birches, and maples, and skirting the larger woods we saw apple trees and azaroles in full bloom, as well as clumps of nut trees, the fruit of which was beginning to form." Upon returning from a fishing excursion, the French met with a tartar tomb curiosity induced them to open it, and they found in it two skeletons laying side by side. The heads were covered with stuff caps, the bodies were wrapped in bearskins, and from the waists hung several little Chinese coins and copper ornaments. They also found half a score of silver bracelets, an iron hatchet, a knife, and other things, 
amongst which was a small bag of blue nanking filled with rice upon the morning of the twenty seventh la perouse left this solitary bay after depositing there several medals with an inscription giving the date of his arrival a little further on more than eight hundred cod which were at once salted were caught and an immense quantity of oysters with superb mother-of-pearl were also obtained after a stay in saffron bay situated in forty seven degrees fifty one minutes north latitude and one hundred thirty seven degrees twenty five minutes east longitude la perouse discovered upon the sixth of july an island which was no other than saghalian the shore here was as wooded as that of tartary lofty mountains arose in the interior the highest of which was called laminin peak as huts and smoke were seen Monsieur de langle and several officers landed the inhabitants had recently fled for the ashes of their fires were scarcely cold just as the french were re-embarking after leaving some presents for the natives a pirogue landed seven natives who showed no signs of fear amongst them says the narrative quote, were two old men with long white beards dressed in stuff made from the bark of trees very like the cotton drawers worn in madagascar two of the seven natives had coats of padded nankeen differing little in shape from those of the chinese others wore long gowns which were fastened by means of a waist-belt and some little buttons so that they had no need of drawers their heads were bare but one or two of them wore bearskin bands they had their forelocks and faces shaven but the back hair kept about eight or ten inches long in a different fashion from the chinese however who leave only a round tuft of hair which they call pentasec all had sealskin boots with the feet artistically worked a la chinois their weapons were bows spears and arrows tipped with iron the oldest of the natives to whom the others showed the most respect had his eyes in a dreadful state he wore a shade around his head to protect them from the sun these natives were grave in manner and friendly Monsieur de langle appointed a meeting for the morrow la perouse and most of his officers attended the facts they learned about these tartars were important and decided la perouse to pursue his discoveries further north Quote, we succeeded in making them understand he says that we wished them to draw their country and that of manchuria one of the old men then arose and with the point of his spear traced the coast of tartary westward running nearly north and south to the east via v in the same direction he represented his island and placing his hand upon his breast made us understand that he had indicated his own country he left an opening between his island and tartary and pointing to our vessels showed us by signs that they could pass through it at the south island he delineated another and left a second opening indicating that this too was a route for our ships his quickness in understanding us was great but not equal to that of another islander about thirty years of age who seeing that the figures traced on sand were rubbed out took one of our pencils and some paper. He traced out his island, which he called Choka, and made a line for the little river upon the shore of which we were, placing it two-thirds of the length of the island from north to south. He then drew Manchuria, leaving, as the old man had done, a strait at the extreme end. 
and to our surprise he added the river Saghalian, the name of which the natives pronounce like ourselves. He placed the mouth of this river a little to the south of the northerly point of his island. We afterwards wished to ascertain whether this strait was very wide. We tried to make him understand our idea. He caught it at once, and, placing his two hands upright at a distance of three inches one from the other, he made us understand that he meant to indicate the width of the little river which formed our watering-place, and then, holding them wider apart, he indicated that the second width was to represent that of the river Saghalian, and, separating them still more, he gave the breadth of the strait which divides his country from Tartary. Monsieur de Langle and I thought it of the greatest importance to ascertain whether the island we were coasting was that to which geographers had given the name of Saghalian, without guessing its extension southwards. I ordered all hands on board, and prepared to sail in the morning. The bay in which we had anchored received the name of Langle, from the captain who discovered it and was the first to put foot on land. In another bay upon the same shore, called Estang Bay, our boats landed close to ten or twelve huts. They were larger than those we before had seen, and were divided into two rooms. That at the back contained the stove, cooking utensils, and the bench running all round. That in front was absolutely bare, and probably destined for the reception of strangers. The women fled when they saw the French land. Two of them, however, were caught, and, whilst they were being reassured, time was found to sketch them. Their faces were peculiar but pleasant. They had small eyes and thick lips, the upper one being painted or tattooed." Monsieur de Langle found the natives gathered about four boats that were loaded with smoked fish, which they were helping to put in water. They were Manchurians from the shores of Saghalian River. In the corner of the island was a kind of circus, planted with fifteen or twenty stakes, each surmounted by the head of a bear. It was supposed, not without some show of reason, that these trophies were intended to perpetuate the memory of a victory over this wild beast. Quantities of codfish were obtained upon this coast, and at the mouth of the river a prodigious quantity of salmon was caught. After reconnoitering the bay of La Jonquière, La Perouse cast anchor in Castor's Bay. His water supply was nearly exhausted, and he had no more wood. The further he penetrated into the strait which separates Saghalian from the continent, the more the depth diminished. La Perouse, recognizing that he could not double the island of Saghalian by the north, and afraid of not being able to leave the defile in which he now found himself, excepting by the strait of Sangar, which was much further south, determined to remain only five days in Castor's Bay, a period which he absolutely needed to take in provisions. The observatory was set up in a small island, while the carpenters cut down wood, and the sailors filled the water-barrels. The huts of these islanders, who call themselves Orochis, says the narrative, are surrounded by a drying-ground for salmon, which were exposed to the sun upon perches, after having been smoked for three or four days at the stove which is in the centre of the hut. The women who have charge of this operation take them, as soon as they are smoked through, into the open air, where they become as hard as wood. The natives joined us in our fishing with nets or hooks, 
and we saw them voraciously devouring the head gills and sometimes the skin of raw salmon tearing it up very cleverly they sucked out the mucilage much as we eat oysters their fish seldom reach the shore without having first paid toll unless the catch is very large and the women show the same eagerness to seize upon the whole fish and in the same ravenous way devour the mucilaginous parts which appear to be their tidbits these people are revoltingly dirty it would be impossible to find a race farther removed from our ideas of beauty in height they are less than four foot ten their bodies are emaciated their voices are weak and shrill like children's they have projecting cheekbones bleared and sunken eyes large mouths flat noses short and almost beardless chins and olive skins shining with oil and smoke they allow their hair to grow long and dress it somewhat in the european style the women wear it loose over their shoulders and the description we have given applies to them as well as to the men from whom they are scarcely to be distinguished except for a slight difference in their apparel the women are not subject to any labor which as in the case of the american indians might have accounted for the inelegance of their appearance all their time is occupied in cutting out and making their clothes in drying fish and nursing their children whom they suckle to the age of three or four years it rather astounded me to see a child of this age who had been shooting with bow and arrows beating a dog etc throw himself upon his mother's bosom and take the place of an infant of five or six months who was lying asleep upon her knees the beaches and the orochis confirmed much of the information which la perouse had already obtained from them he ascertained that the northern part of saghalien was connected with the continent merely by a sandbank on which grew seaweed and where there was but little water this concurrence of testimony left no room for doubt especially as he never found more than six fathoms in the canal there remained but one point of interest to determine and that was the survey of the southern point of saghalien which he had only explored as far as langle bay in forty seven degrees forty nine minutes upon the second of august the astrolabe and the boussole left castor's bay and returned southwards successively discovering and reconnoitring manarone island and langle peak doubling the southern point of saghalien called cape Crillon, which led to a strait between oku gesso and gesso this they named after la perouse hitherto the geography of this part of the world had been most fanciful and imaginary sanson was of opinion that korea was an island and that gesso oku gesso and kamchatka existed only in imagination whilst delisle insisted that gesso and oku gesso were merely an island ending at sangar strait and lastly Buach, in his considerations geographiques page one hundred five says quote, gesso after being placed first in the east then in the south and finally in the west was at last to be found in the north to this confusion the discoveries of the french expedition were destined to put an end la perouse had some intercourse with the natives of Crillon cape and stated that they were handsome men far more industrious than the orochis of castor's bay but less liberal in their dealings they have he says quote, one most important article of commerce 
unknown in the channel of Tartary, from which they derive their riches, namely whale oil. Of this they collect considerable quantities. They extract it in a way which is far from economical. They cut the flesh into pieces and dry it upon a slope in the open air by exposing it to the sun. The oil which flows from it is caught in vessels made of bark or into bottles of dried seal skin. After sighting the Cape Arniva of the Dutch, the vessels coasted along the barren, treeless, uninhabited country in possession of the Dutch company, and shortly reached the Kural Islands. They then passed between Maracon Island and the island of the Four Brothers, calling the strait, the finest amongst the Kurile Islands, through which they penetrated, La Baudouze. On the 3rd of September, the coast of Kamchatka was reached. This coast was uninviting enough. Quote, there the eyes rest painfully, and often fearfully, upon enormous masses of rock, which are already covered with snow in the beginning of September, and which never appear to have had any vegetation. Three days later, Avacha Bay, or the Bay of St. Peter and St. Paul, was reached. The astronomers at once proceeded to take observations. The naturalists made the perilous and arduous ascent of a volcano, some eight leagues inland, whilst those of the crew who were not engaged upon the vessels gave themselves up to hunting and fishing. Thanks to the welcome accorded by the governor, their pleasures were varied. We were invited, says La Perouse, quote, to a ball which the governor wished to give to all the women, whether from Kachatka or Russia. If the ball was not large, it was at least mixed. Thirteen females, clothed in silk, ten of whom were natives of Kamchatka, with large faces, small eyes, and flat noses, were seated upon benches round the room. Both they and the Russians wore silk handkerchiefs wrapped round the head, in a way similar to those worn by mulattoes. The ball opened with Russian dances, the airs for which were very lively, and like those of the Cossack dances given a short time since in Paris. These were followed by the Kamachka dances, which were comparable only to the convulsionists of the famous tomb of St. Medard. The dancers of this part of Asia scarcely require legs, they make such vigorous use of the shoulders and arms. The impression made upon the spectators by the convulsive and contorted movements of the Kamchatka dancers is painful, and is rendered more so by a pitiful cry which escapes them at intervals, and which is the sole music by which they measure their time the exertions they made are so formidable that they are completely covered with sweat and at the conclusion they lie upon the ground unable to move a limb the exhalations from their bodies permeate the atmosphere with the smell of fish and oil so strong as to be disagreeable to the unaccustomed nostrils of europeans the arrival of a courier from ototsk interrupted the ball the news he brought was pleasant for every one but particularly for La Perouse, who learned that he was promoted. During their stay in this port, the navigators found the tomb of Louis de Lisle de la Croyere, member of the Academy of Sciences, who died in Kamchatka in 1741, upon his return from an expedition undertaken by command of the Tsar for the survey of the American coast. His fellow countrymen honored his memory by placing an engraved copper slab over his grave. They paid the same homage to Captain Clerk, Captain Cook's second-in-command and successor. 
Avacha Bay, says La Perouse, quote, is certainly the best, most commodious, and safest to be found in any part of the world. The entrance is narrow, and forts might easily be constructed to command vessels entering it. The anchorage is excellent, the bottom muddy, and two large harbors, one on the eastern shore and one on the west, would hold all the vessels of the French and English navy. End, End of section 30